Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the Marketing Minds at DoYouConvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak. As always, episode 130, and Becca is here this week. So excited. <laughs> How's everything going? Everything's going good. Good. Do you yeah. date of the baby is approaching? Yes, middle of February. So. And how is it? This is baby number one for you. So yes. how has it been as magical as everyone describes it to be? Do, some people love being pregnant. Like my wife hated it. But some of her friends were like, oh, I just wish I was pregnant all the time because everyone just gives you all this extra attention. My and wife they, is like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, so in times of COVID... <laughs> I, you know, yeah. work from home. <laughs> no, and no extra attention. Your cats are giving you more attention, maybe? Yes, I actually, one of my cats to. likes to sleep on my belly and purr, oh, which then makes the kid kick. So. Oh, jeez. Oh, wow. Stopped. You're That's waiting. hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, hilarious. Gosh. That is pretty funny, though. The cat has to yes. know. Yeah. Well, as promised, new sound effects. So here we go. Let's head into it. story time. Story time. I love it. Where's my office sign? I just got a sign that says the office. Now, how does that, how does that connect? You might be wondering one, Andrew loves the office. I've seen five episodes now, I think of season one. I've made up for Kevin's lack of watching them. I'm making my way through it, but also what are these stories are about anything? I mean, I, I, I spent way too much time, trust me, trying to figure out what sound effect would be better than Teddy Ruxpin. And it was super hard. So if you have a better better sound than the office theme song. Although Andrew might be very like upset if we one, changed it. Well, it could be one of the Seinfeld bass guitar. Okay. That was things. my other, I was either going to do That's... this one or Seinfeld. I just thought our audience <laughs> might, might be drawn nothing. more to this. It's a little more current. Seinfeld yeah. is now like almost on the Nick at night channel. Like we, we play it those. Is. Well, I mean, anytime now you watch a show, that's a square. Mm-hmm. It kind of freaks me out. It's like, wait, what's, what's happening we, here? Yeah, we have our neighbors trying to get us to watch the, watch Friends, which I watched Friends kind of growing up, but not like The Office. Like Friends is not my generation being 31. I feel like it's The Office. Uh, yeah. So I just I've started yeah. it. I just can't get into it. It's just eh, too much relationship. To let you know about my childhood because I know you all enjoy hearing my childhood <laughs> stories of poor Kevin. I only got to watch Friends when I could like sneak it because oh, that man. was a that was a terrible filthy show that right? <laughs> Would be like, was that around? I feel like whatever the order of the show was, my grandfather would come over. It'd be Seinfeld, Frasier. I think Friends might have been in the mix, like the same lineup. And that would just be on. And of course, he'd fall asleep. I feel like every grandfather does that sit on the couch <laughs> and sleep in like two minutes. Oh, man. Watched, See, you got stories about anything. That's great. We watched Star, uh, what is it? Starship Voyager. Starship. Okay. Yeah. We went through all those. Enterprise, I guess. I don't Enterprise. know. Yeah. I yeah, one of those. We don't even worry. That's Star Trek. We don't yeah. talk about that. It's just, yeah. it's just about Star well, Wars. Star Wars was good too. Like anything in the space realm was what <laughs> we watched with what my you want dad. It to be? Oh, Love shoot. It. All right, Becca, kick off story time for us. All right. Tis the season for follow-up. And Love it. my husband was telling me the story that um, he called three maid service companies all on his lunch break one never responded one texted him 
uh, 8.45 rather aggressively at night. Oh, so that's like eight hours later or something. E- yeah. Okay. And then the winner responded immediately, provided a reasonable price, um, had great front-end service, and got him everything he needed so that he could make an appointment in less than a couple hours. Plus, they were the only ones that had, hold on, only positive Google reviews. Interesting. I wonder why. It almost seems like they've thought about what they're doing. Yeah. Which is almost, it's funny you say this since like, is, wouldn't any normal business who wants business do what the last person did? Right. Seems so simple. And it just made me think of, it's that time of year for us as home builders. And um, while we might not have as many new leads coming in, the ones that we respond to and we respond quickly and accurately are more likely to convert. Yeah, I'll hop on the back of that one. So our fridge broke. It's still keeping things cold, but the lights don't turn on. The water won't, and ice won't work because there's a loose cable on one of the, our fridge has a pantry cabinet, they call it. It pulls out just for like meat and cheese. It's mm-hmm. so you don't mm-hmm. have to open up yeah. the other parts of the fridge. Mm-hmm. And that cable's loose. That's what's causing it. Mm-hmm. So my first thought was, well, I can do this myself. I'll just get the cable. It's <laughs> it's 49 bucks and there's a YouTube video that professionally yeah. made that shows step-by-step yeah. how to do it. No big deal. And then I thought I'm busy. I have four children. It's holiday season. I don't want to do that. So sure. I went to Angie's list, got the name of the t- top two companies, called the first one. He answered the phone. Really super nice guy. And, and almost a sales mentality too, when he answered, even though he's probably not, I mean, it was a one man shop. It, it ended up being, but I said, Hey, I, I think I have a, I need a new wire harness for my pantry cabinet on my kitchen. thing. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's pretty specific. Why do you think that? Like, he didn't even ask who I was, whatever. He was just like <laughs> right into why, why do you think that? And I started explaining to him that it seemed like it was a common thing online. I, I could wiggle the cable that was happening. And he was like, okay, well, um, you know, the best, the best, meaning the one certified by KitchenAid in, in Columbus, Ohio, is this other company further down south. He goes, I can't really speak to the quality of their work, but that's who you probably need to go through. It may end up being under warranty. Talk to me for like another four minutes about, you know, they may claim that they can't look up the warranty information, but they can because as long as you have the serial number, like Whirlpool knows when you bought it so they can tell you the warranty information. Don't let them. He was giving me all this great information. Nice. Great experience. Hung up the phone, uh, called the other company. They said they couldn't come out till December 29th. That would be, uh, over two weeks away. And my family refuses to drink water out of the faucet. Does anyone, I, that drives me nuts. I drink out of the faucet just out of like, I, I that do is it. what we do. I like don't like cold water. So that uh, I, yeah. I don't like the taste of our water. Yeah, no, uh, it's still okay. the same. It's, it's, uh, no. it's not like a, it's just a filter in the fridge, Becca. Mm-hmm. It's not like a reverse osmosis, sand, yeah. gravel, all this, whatever. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. so that's like a big deal for my family. Not for me. I'm not one of those <laughs> hoity-toity <laughs> folks. Water but, snobs. Yeah, water snobs. <laughs> so then I was like, all right, I'm going to get the part myself. Ordered the part. And they said it would be shipped in, in May. So I was like, (laughs) well, we're going to, we're going to go ahead. Anyway, it was big, big disaster. It's going to take forever to to fix the fridge. That just talks to about the supply chain issues and demand for consumers for all this stuff and how that's only going to get worse in 2021. 
But then I was thinking about this guy who gave me great service. And I don't know his name. I don't remember the name of his company because he Uh-oh. also never took any down any information. He sounded like he was driving. Interesting. And I thought, man, what a what a shame because he could have followed up with me if he was trying to, you know, take over the appliance industry here in Columbus, mm-hmm. Ohio. There is still a missed opportunity there because my relationship time with him is so short. Even though it was amazing, he answered the he answered the phone gave me all this good information. He has no idea who I am. He can't send me an email. He can't, there's, yeah. and because of that, I'm going to, I already don't know his name. I'm not going to spend the time to go back up and look it up. But the next time I'm talking to someone about an appliance repair, I would certainly be likely to say, you should call this guy. If for no other reason, he's going to tell you what, you know, what's up. Can you look at your outgoing calls from that day? Oh yeah. No, I can see the number, but I, oh. I'm not calling him again. Like I, I just, I just, from a, from an owner's right. perspective, it's like, man, so close. And yet there's this gap of yeah. like you're saying, you know, you do have to follow up when you do get leads inbound. Don't just say, well, you know, we don't have anything for forever. You still want to like, you still want to follow those scripts that Mike and Jen teach. Like who do I have the pleasure of speaking with? In case we disconnected, can I and, and yeah. all those other things, so we can still continue to reach out to them and connect, because we can still give them great service, even if it doesn't lead to a sale. For sure, I have a follow up story to add on to that. Oh, you know, we're we're doing the patio in the back, hot tub, spa, all that stuff. Um, so I have to get wiring run, so electrical. I'm not messing with electrical, even though I try to pretend like I know how to do everything myself. Wires <laughs> and stuff sounds yeah. terrifying. Fires can happen, and you know that's that's meh. So I brought two people out. First guy, kind of abrasive, but he was super quick. He was more professional on the process side. He got me a quote within 24 hours that what he said, within 24 hours, I will have a quote to you. Sure, if he did, came in, very beautiful, all this stuff. Second guy came out, had a lot more personal recommendations to work with the second guy. The first one was a referral from where we were buying the hot tub from. Second one was like, hey, who do you use? Who do you use? Multiple people said this guy. They're like, he's a little weird, but get past that. He's nice. Comes out. Super nice personality. He's British, UK, English. I don't know the correct term. Curses up a storm, but uses UK curse words, which we wouldn't use. I'm not going to say them because we wouldn't use them. They're more offensive than normal curse words. So I'm, I'm watching like, The Crown too, and their curse words are hilarious. On yeah. that show. Like, this is this is such a bizarre like experience I'm having. But he's super nice, and he's like, "Oh, this is amazing!" Like he's he's like Chick Fil A compared to a better run McDonald's, which the other guy was. I guess like it was more pleasant dealing with him. He's like, yeah. I'll do, I'll give you a quote really quick. Three days later, I'm like, where's this stupid quote at? Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed talking to with him so much. And like, he was much friendlier, personal. I called him up. He's like, Hey, Andrew, I was just about to call you, but I'm like, sure you were like, I just <laughs> called you. You were not going to call me. And he's like, beep this, beep that all, all the stuff going on is like, that was messing up the time frame. He's like, I'll send it to you shortly. He texted it to me, which is completely fine. I could care less about getting like this formal right. thing. Like it's a super simple job that we're doing. And then like the next day, one of his trucks got ran over by a school bus or something. Like, oh no. It's this train wreck happening. So he's coming out tomorrow. It's a, it's a long story. So it took eight days to get him out, which doesn't seem too terrible. But as uh it was interesting that sometimes this is not this is like against what we just said, but it'll be interesting if there are sales agents or people who should be following up who don't they get away with it because they are so well liked that people just want to work with them 
And so they get around doing the work. But imagine if this guy had someone else do his follow-up is what I'm, what I'm going towards. Mm-hmm. And same with the person you talked to, maybe it's similar thing, like someone else should do your follow-up and you would probably be, I mean, this guy already sounds like he's very successful with everything he was talking about. He was very interested in, in what we do, just like building and, and all that stuff. And I'm like, if, what, what if he did, had someone else do this that made whatever base salary plus commission, et cetera, like he yeah, he needs to talk to Sean Van Dyke and get he his to to, stuff figured out for sure. Yeah. <laughs> quotes, like, uh-huh. He's like, I'll do it for this much. I'm like, thumbs up, works for me. <laughs> Sean, for those of you who, who may not know, is a consultant who works with uh, contractors uh, and making sure that their businesses are run effectively yeah. and efficiently. And, and that would be right up his yeah, alley. Profit first. His book is really interesting too, if you apply it to your own personal finances. Not that we're a finance show, but it's, it's interesting just taking that. Yeah, same. it's like Dave Ramsey minus the... Yeah. Weird stuff. Weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's true. Well, let's just, let's just condense story time down and stick around this idea of prepping for the consumer storm. You know, 2021, just this morning on CNBC, they were talking about uh, permits are up six, 6.3% from October to November, I believe was the, was the data, but only 1% of that increase came from single family. The rest was multifamily. And if you think about these are starts, so these are sales probably from August uh, and September and that we're not, we're not picking up the pace enough. And so supply and demand is going to continue to be outbalanced, especially on the single family side for the foreseeable future, regardless of any other conditions. And so I just think that sets up for a really strong first half of the year, but almost so strong that we're just going to continue to get worse press if we don't set ourselves up for success. And what I mean by that is, again, people are already having people threaten to sue them because of their pre-sale process. Like they're launching a new neighborhood and due to the amount of people interested, they're saying, hey, you you need to put a thousand dollar deposit in order to meet with us. And they're saying, that's, you know, that's illegal. I'm going to get my lawyer because I'm interested. And so you can't not talk to me about it. And and this is just ridiculous. And, uh, there's just a lot of stress we've Crazy. talked before, like the country and individuals are emotionally worn out from 2020 yeah. and it's, it's bubbling over now, but 2020 generally has been about how great housing has been doing and look at all the surge and the employment that the industry can bring all the good things. 2021 may be the year where this starts to come back around on the other end. And it's going to be about all the builders who aren't delivering on their promises or how hard it is to buy a home and all those negative, negative things. And there's lots of things we can do to make that better or try to, to counteract those forces. One, the construction concierge type position where someone who is keeping them updated regularly on the process. The idea here is this person is like a black hole for negative energy. They absorb <laughs> all the negative energy from the customer, but take the factual stuff and pass it on to the project manager and yep. then the project manager can relay the information. And, and because you have this intermediary, it, it can't become personal between those two very important parties. That's like, like if the project idea. manager is the one making the updates, it's not that it's a bad thing, but at some point when that, when things aren't going right, the customer is going to say, this is a personal problem with you. I don't care what the company line oh, is yeah. or company impacts. It's like, you're a bad project manager. And, and this position could provide empathy to both parties, absorb all the negative, pass along the factual. That's one way to do it. Expensive. I know it's another headcount, um, but another near and dear, close to our heart way to do that is with content. 
And when we talk about content yes. at, at the highest level, you need two different types of content on your site. You need shopping content. What are the plans? What are the prices? What are the options? What are the included features, et cetera? Photos, videos, all around the idea of making decisions, purchasing behavior, shopping content. But then you also need trust building content and you need enough of it so that when anyone hears a story or a national news article goes viral about how bad housing is doing, whatever, they come and they see your content that builds trust through testimonials, through third-party warranties, through awards, like the National Housing Quality Award, as an example. We talked to someone today who just found out that they were a winner nice. of that. Lots of different ways to do that, but you've got to have enough of it, both breadth and depth of that, to say, this doesn't apply to us. And so when you're finalizing your budgets, two things you got to think about is that trust building content, number one, and uh, number two is standard operating procedures for when things go wrong, how do we react? If you're a larger company, you can't depend, like at DU Convert, we were just talking about this the other day, we're, we're a small enough organization that we could just tell everyone because we only hire the best, right? The best. I'm just going to, I mean, that's, that's, that's not the a best. personal <laughs> opinion of mine. That is a factual statement. We hire the best people in the industry. So we could say something like that. We could say, Hey, if anything happens, just take care of it. But the bigger you get, you're going to have people who are not the best on your team. And so you have to have standard operating procedures for if this bad thing happens, which might happen up to 20% of the time, we can't predict when, but we know it's going to happen two out of 10 times. What do we do? What are you allowed to do? What is the standard operating procedure? You got to start thinking about that stuff because again, everyone's emotionally worn out and we're not getting much of a break this year. Normally this half of December is break time, like recharge yeah. the batteries, get ready for the next year. Mm -mm, not happening. We're, we're about 25% above where we were last year as a uh, national averages in website traffic. Appointments are basically flat from November and October for the most part. Uh, leads might be a little bit down, but not enough to give anyone a break. So get ready, everyone. We're, you know, 2021's coming and we got to have, we got to have some fuel left in the tank. Get ready. I was just going to say that being proactive when you know that you're having an issue is helpful. I know that when we showed up to our home site and one of the uh, concrete trucks had backed into our this garage <laughs> right and nobody said anything we were like ah but when we talked to the construction manager he said oh yeah i didn't call you guys because i already got them the masons that they're going to be out tomorrow to fix it so it just, or when we we showed up in the wrong exterior siding was on the house yeah and our guys like that's no that's what it's supposed to be we're like i think we got a bad dude on our <laughs> we went that we went yeah. that route for sure. Yeah. Um, the benchable and shoppable content. You said put that in your yes. budget. I this is I have terrible questions, but I know there's a few yeah. personalities that I know listen are like, well, Kevin, what how much money do I need for this bingeable stuff? Like I don't even know like where to start. A thousand a month, two thousand a month. I'm sure it depends on what they want to accomplish. Like, what do you what are you thinking? Well, I think the main thing is to to do the math backwards on how many leads you feel like you're gonna need. And then keep a little bit of a reserve, but you're probably not going to have to spend what you spent or plan to spend in 2020 or what you did spend in 20, 2019, because you don't have the inventory to absorb the extra sales interest. And you can only sell so far out into the future without creating a lot of risk for your company and your reputation. So 
I think you do that math and then you look and say, what is left? That's why uh, if you use the budget tool that I, that I put out there for you all, the Excel file, you know, it says this percentage is going to go to digital. And then when it splits it up between those three areas, the first one is how much do we need to spend on ads? Then are we doing anything major with the website in terms of a redesign or, or uh, uh, major initiatives there? And then whatever is left in some years, that's almost, you know, that could be almost six figures if you're, if you're yeah. large enough, it's like, whatever yeah. is left, that is what needs to go into content. And it, again, it's designed to force you to figure out how do I spend this money effectively? That might mean you might look at it and say, I can't. And so that's going to force more uh, investment in the site and making that better over time too. But okay. it's not so much a flat dollar amount as it is saying whatever is left and then, and then making sure that you're not overspending on ads. Overspending on advertising in Q1 could crush the will of your online sales team and your sales team. Yeah. It really sure. could. It, it, yeah. It's almost potentially as dangerous as helpful if you overinvest in ads in Q1. I think the content, just thinking about if our buyers are more educated, that makes everyone's life easier. Yes. Like, because every conversation they have will be straight to, or more quicker to what actually needs to be discussed versus, oh, no, we can't, do, or like the education moments is they've already happened if they're binging on that content that you've invested in. Yeah, so that, and I, that everyone trust will love us. You. We're working on on something, guys, because everyone is asking us nonstop. Well, who is the best at this? Like, you just want to know who's got the best website. No one does. There's always things that could be improved for any one company. Who does content the best? No one does. Some someone who might yeah. do fantastic live streams, their recorded content is questionable at best. Or I saw someone who does so many. We don't work with them. They do a lot of really good stuff. Their remarketing is straight up garbage. So I can't just say <laughs> do what I need a picture of you just saying <laughs> it's straight up garbage and have that be the quote as if it's like this inspirational Instagram thing. Well, and and I, I love it again. No one can can keep all the plates spinning perfectly. Yeah. No one can. Mm -hmm. Can, yeah. it was just there's always a trade-off they they i think correctly said if we do remarketing just okay garbage is a little tough uh see even <laughs> i am emotionally drained in 2020 no. <laughs> i get grumpy i think but people like those words i think um yeah that, that that's a that's probably the right trade-off for that company to be making but we've got some way we know this is what you want and we're going to deliver on some ways so to help you make your content better in 2021 Okay, on to the news. First up, man, this has been on my list and I don't know why <laughs> we keep missing it, but, uh, and I thought kind of this was just out there and someone in a, in a private Facebook group didn't realize this was the case and it was a pretty big deal to them. So uh, BDX slash New Home Source is no longer partnering with Realtor.com on listings as of February 1st. So let me just say that again. If you're syndicating your information to New Home Source uh, currently slash in the past, that would continue on to Realtor.com. That will no longer happen as of February 1st. That means Realtor.com leads will no longer flow through New Home Source slash BDX anymore as well. Now, I don't have a lot of other factual information in front of me. People have told me that um, in their conversations with with representatives that somewhere between 15 and 20% of the leads or uh, interest 
that came through New Home Source might have come through Realtor.com in the past. Other people have said, I did research on my own leads and it was closer to 40% of my leads came from Realtor.com, which I trust that person, but I, that also I haven't heard anyone lot. else say a number that high. So that is just something to be aware of as you're planning for 2021 and figuring out if it, you know, which syndication sources you want to be a part of, because you probably don't need to be on all three. And Realtor.com is also, well, again, every budget is different. Every situation is different. But if you're making those decisions, Realtor.com does have its own product that they're communicating to builders about. And there's two options. I, I hopefully will get That's to nice. talk to someone at Realtor.com. And I mean this very nicely to, to you folks if you do listen. This is the most complicated uh, pricing product structure I've ever seen. It probably seemed really good in Excel when you were dreaming it up. But uh, from what I can tell, you get two options. You can either pay per lead, so a flat dollar amount per lead from the community, okay. with some form of a cap, I believe. So the the... If you don't get very many leads, you don't pay very much money. If you do get leads, you have some type of cap at the end. Kind of like New Homes Directory has done with clicks in the past uh, for traffic. Or you can do uh, a model that's basically like Zillow's Promoted Communities product where you pay $300 a month for per community per listing and you just, it runs. Um, so one, make sure to connect with a Realtor.com representative if that is of interest to you. Two, just understand that the amount of leads and traffic you're getting from new home source may change uh, after February 1st, but I'm sh I have also heard that they are working on ways that they're going to try to plug that loss through other initiatives. My hunch is probably more Facebook ads, but I, I don't know. I was, I was going to be a smart <laughs> a and to be like, it better not be that because you can just do that on your own. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm actually kind of shocked that no one else has just looked at the value of Facebook and Instagram ads and say, I'm going to make my own mini portal just in my town. I mean, to create a portal of here's the home builders in, in yeah. Tampa and for you to spend sure. two grand a month getting all of the people going there and then say, yeah. builders, you owe me for whatever. I'm, I mean, it, I will make it tonight. So that's news story number one. News story <laughs> number two. Uh, this is from adage.com. TikTok is ad age marketers of the year, and Amazon is now the world's largest advertiser. This is a, a roundup email, but they named TikTok the marketer of the year. And Facebook also recently went on the record of saying TikTok is the company that scares them the most of all of the other social networks. I agree with that, I think. Mm. Not for home builders, but I think as far as impact and what do people know about and you catch someone humming something was that song on TikTok. I think there's a high likelihood, likelihood depends on the age, of course. But I think like just they went from who who is this to like, wow, like it's everywhere. The TikToks are on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok. Yeah. It's like just it's like this virus thing. Can I I shouldn't have said virus spreading everywhere. <laughs> That's awful. But yeah, it's like I, yeah, what is Facebook? But for home builders, no. There's no, not none of them. Yeah, and also, so so we don't need to talk more about TikTok. That's that's totally okay. We can just we can ignore that, right? That is correct. Okay, so Perfect. moving on to Amazon <laughs> is the world's largest advertiser. I thought that was also super interesting. They leapfrog Procter and Gamble, which previously topped the list every single year since 1987, except for in 2017 when it was outspent by Samsung. Of all people, so historically, Amazon 
kind of originally followed the Tesla model. Very few ads. And, and this is the reason I think this is most interesting is it's it's usually very telling when a company is concerned about their ability to continue to grow at the historical rate that it has. You see them doing stranger things. Um, but but more than anything, so, so part of that is like when Facebook runs print ads. Right now they're running print ads. Yeah. Full page ads in a lot of newspapers around the country. What? That's right. Exactly. That that should make you say that. I keep saying this over and over until Rich Barton listens. Zillow needs to stop running television ads and put stuff back on Zillow and Instagram at the same dollar amount and watch his stock value triple. Yeah. It just doesn't make When they do things like this, it, it doesn't make sense. They're doing it for ulterior motives for perception or for the board or investors yeah. or other things. For sure. In this case, though, I think Amazon just said, you know what? All you guys are going to slow down your advertising because of this pandemic thing. All right. Uh, you know, little joke. Hold my beer. I'm going to go dominate <laughs> yep. this space. Uh, I wish they gave a breakdown of where they spent that. But I know the dynamic ads on Google for Amazon is huge. Like they yeah. spend a lot on that. Yeah. They I spent, would say, go ahead. Oh, it just says they, they're spending sort 34% to 11 billion in 2019. Yikes. <laughs> How many people I will say that? that I think they have more competition because mm -hmm. sometimes when you buy things on Amazon, you're not really certain how authentic they are. Yep. But if you go to um, Walmart or Target and buy them online, you know you're getting something that is genuine. Yeah, I think Walmart actually is starting to allow some third-party stuff just like Amazon is to try to scale. Oh. But you're right. that is they, they do just generally have more... Uh, competition. And so maybe they yeah. don't have a choice anymore. And I heard um, from someone with Walmart, they are getting much looser on who can be on Walmart. Like it's, it's turning into a free for all. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which it is an Amazon. And so yeah. it's not mm -hmm. unsurprising because Walmart yeah. really views themselves as yeah. and they the have only prime Amazon killer out there. Predator thing. What I don't know what it's called, yep. but like the two day shipping, one day yep. shipping. Oh, they do? Because I think Target's, Target needs to iron out their shipping issues to really be a competitor. Target mm -hmm. pickup is the jam. But the pickup, yeah. The, the yeah. stores and the ability to just go in and pick it up same same day. Or, of course, or, we have one five minutes that way, one five minutes that way. So we're mm -hmm. like, hmm, where do we go? <laughs> yep. All right. This next news article makes me so very happy because I like <laughs> trees. You guys might hate trees, trees as home builders. That's kind of our deal, right? We hate the environment. That's a joke. Settle down. A, but know. I like trees. And then specifically That's the fact that printmag.com announced that the Ikea catalog is wait. dead. They canceled it. No more. I didn't know that's a website. <laughs> oh yeah. Printmag.com. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, I, I used to, I used to subscribe to them about nine years ago, I think. Uh, but, but here we go. Consider our Swedish furniture loving hearts broken. The uh, <laughs> IKEA hints that eventually it may come back. I think they said in 2022, but for 2021, no IKEA catalog. You know what's interesting for that is Amazon sent out their like the toy Christmas catalog. toy catalog, yes, and that was huge in our house. I think like it just every child looked through it. So three, like just the the view time on that catalog, insane. Um, an interaction with it. And so maybe Ikea a little bit different, but you know, because it's a huge catalog, but I don't, there's, there's, this is so stereotypical. There's something about just looking at a piece of paper while sitting on your couch, da, da, da. But if you, yeah, it's a little different than the 
Christmas catalog. Yeah. If you think about who it's targeted to, like you and I can go right to Ikea.com mm-hmm. and look at all every, pictures, video, yeah, read the specs, like learn yeah. how to put things together. But kids who, yeah, who want to look at toys, that's when I think the catalog's a little bit more genius. Other than that, like I, I, I would be happy if I never got a catalog in the mail again. Yeah, exactly. In fact, um, I got a, I got a mini catalog for a jewelry company and I oh. thought of all things, that's crazy. It's just bizarre. Yes. Cause so, that's such a purchase you, at least in my mind, you want to see and feel in person. You might be inspired by what you see in them, but like you will without a doubt, at least I would think yeah. going. So person. this is, this has been a 70 year running long running wow. publication. And they wow. said, following an emotional but rational decision, the publication is coming to an end. And then I love this. This is, this is, now I know these guys are smart. Interestingly, Ikea is also nixing the digital version of the catalog as well. And what I love about that Good. is yeah. normally people would be like, well, you can still get the PDF on. No, someone had to spend Garbage. all the time putting that <sighs> stupid thing together when they should have yeah. been making your website or your app better. I agree. Yep. And so I, I love the fact that they just cut it off entirely, but they did again, leave the door open, um, that in fall of the 2021, the company intends to publish a book filled with great home furnishing inspiration and knowledge. So now what they're doing is taking mm. some of that ancillary content that maybe you yeah. don't look at on their site. Cause you're just there when you want to buy and they're trying to inspire you to the point that you want to get on their site or app and then shop. I think that's smarter. I like the lookbooks. I think that eventually there could be a spot for that online on the website instead of a book. Yep. I completely agree. All right. Let's go with this one from Inman.com. Yeah. I like CoStar. Remember we talked about them purchasing HomeSnap, which gave them immediate access to national MLS um, databases and partnerships. And uh, now what we kind of thought would happen is already happening. So CoStar is spoiling for a fight with Zillow over listing data in New York City. HomeSnap, which CoStar is acquiring, is reportedly working with the Real Estate Board of New York on a listing portal to rival StreetEasy, which is a brand that um, Zillow uses in that marketplace because the New York City market is is kind of a world in and of itself. And so they do have a separate brand there called StreetEasy. And... um, Shocker, maybe not shocking. They are uh, apparently going to create a competing brand. And what I think is interesting about this is it makes total sense. Um, just like Compass, which is a, a general uh, used home brokerage, their focus is really on the higher end marketplaces because the margins are amazing. And and traditionally, maybe not right now, but traditionally, New York City, the Bay Area, et cetera, high margin and high volume. So high dollar volume of sales and, and high volume. Great place to start out something that you might want to then eventually roll out nationwide. And I think that's what is likely happening here. I, CoStar has a different perspective on Zillow. And builders don't necessarily care about this as much. But you know, Zillow currently has their pr- premier agent program where leads can go to someone else that's not the listing agent. And... Uh, this group CEO, Andy Florence, was quoted as saying, we will not create a billion dollar product putting other people's names on the wrong listing. <laughs> it's kind of a... That's funny. They're not messing around <laughs> in terms of their approach. Like the industry, 
of of brokers and agents, I feel like I just heard them all shout collectively together yes. uh, with their excitement. So sure. Zillow is still beloved by consumers, uh, general, not generally, but but often maligned by agents. And I think CoStar is trying to be sneaky and and ride off that that mentality to try to give themselves a boost as they as they start. I do, I do recommend going to streeteasy.com or homes.nyc just to, for me, living in Florida, we, we have downtowns, but totally different world. I'm like, this is so, one, it's depressing. I'm looking at this place in Lenox Hill, New York, 6,800 a month, and it is two bedroom, two bath, <laughs> 1,300 square feet, 6,800 a month for rent. But you could search by building and there's like, so it's just so different than purchasing a single yeah, and, home and don't just look at the rent or the payment you got to look at the um condo of fees or oftentimes mm-hmm. that doubles that amount per month like it's, it's yeah it's so different at first i'm like why other than mls stuff data but like you could search by building like that's not even like that's never occurred to me they'd be like oh i want to live in that building like that's what i want or this building this building that building i want to know that yeah that's pretty cool all right uh we're going to take a quick break when we come back a fantastic interview with Sam DeBoard from Riso.org, the real estate standards organization. Uh, Sam is able to give us uh, builders who don't use the MLS perhaps as much some insight into how it works, the benefits of it, and answer some of the common questions that you guys have. We'll be right back. And we're back this week with Sam DeBoer, the CEO at the Real Estate Standards Organization, or RESO for short, R-E-S-O. And Sam, this might be the first time that I've ever interviewed someone for the podcast that I have no idea which way we're going to go. Not just because we've never met in person and, and we've become, uh, what is their official term for Twitter friends? <laughs> Tweeps. Sweeps, okay. But also because we're talking about something that terrifies home builders in so many different ways. Data, just at the most abstract idea, and then the MLS in particular. And there's a lot of questions that builders have that they, they don't understand how it works. Uh, everything's always wrong. The price point shows up differently in different places. They just can't stay organized. And it struck me that you are a person that not just everyone else needs to get to know, but I need to get to know. And so I asked him to come on the podcast and he graciously accepted. So thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for having me, Kevin. This will be a first for me with a little prep, but we've got a lot to talk about and probably just good to talk through the average conversation that a, a data person, an MLS person and a builder might have. That's exactly right. But first we've got to start with the most important, which is how we actually got connected is, um, did I see a picture where you attended college game day? Uh, we did actually. There was a University of Washington football game. Did uh, you know the silly younger than you really are thing with a bunch of friends and showed <laughs> up very early in the morning in the rain to hold up signs. And I somehow lucked into uh, finding my way up on the stage with the broadcasters there. So that'll be a something uh, something forever cherished. There is a right. photo with Kirk Herb Street and Desmond Howard. That's amazing. And is that your team then? Uh, I grew up a Husky fan. I'm in the Seattle area. I went to USC, so I've got split allegiances with the Trojans and Huskies. But 
um, outside of my friends who like to rib me for it. That works out fairly well for me. And who's yours? <laughs> I'm a, I'm a Buckeye. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio Got in the it. shadow of, of the university, but. Oh, age. Yeah. The hardest part about being a Buckeye fan is that you're used to always being in the big game, but you're also used to almost always losing when you're there. So you've, you've got some good rear yeah. years going lately. So <laughs> upside potential. That's right. Well, let's dive uh, right into it. First of all, uh, Rezo, the company that, that you run, and this might hint into that this actually is a somewhat complex conversation anyway. We don't want to oversimplify. Um, why, why do we even need a real estate standards organization? What, what brought this about and how does it, how does it connect with uh, how real estate agents do their day-to-day work? Sure, that's a good way to start because there's a lot of complexity and a lot of inconsistency in the industry, whether that was from practices, agents working with brokers, agents working with consumers, and then technology and information. So um, when Realtor Association started, there were thousands. Most of them eventually built out their own MLS. So they'd have a local marketplace. And, and that, that was a that was a book back in the day, right? Sure, exactly. Right. <laughs> it was a it was a book before that, it was index cards. Um Whatever happened to be, it could have just been a local meeting where everybody came together and said, I've got listings, who's got buyers? Oh, that's mind blowing. It's really interesting, but we've, we've got a lot of people today who are still selling, who've been around since the books and the index card days. So while what we think about today is national and international websites with listings, these were all just little pockets all across the industry. And eventually folks started saying, we need to regionalize a little bit more here. Mm-hmm. Uh, a multiple listing service shouldn't just be you know, Southeast Seattle, and that's all they know, and no one outside knows what's in there. So as these associations, realtor associations, and most of the MLSs in the industry were owned and run by realtor associations, they started consolidating, um, they started forming more regional organizations, and they saw that their information was totally um, unstandardized. It, It was out of sync. You couldn't take a listing from Seattle and sync it up with a listing in Spokane. Um, because they were all defined differently, however the local marketplace wanted to define that. So as technology really became critically important to brokers, to MLSs, to the technology vendors, the industry came together and said, we need a standard. We need a common universal language for listing data and related data. And just to be able to bring that efficiency to everybody's marketplace, but also that information to the consumers in a fair way. And it's at Resilver we're really formed with the same philosophy as lots of open standards organizations. There's a reason you can get Gmail and you can use Microsoft Edge on your Apple iPhone, because there are just standards out there that everybody adheres to. You've got common languages that we can use. And then we all compete at a higher level on top of that standard. Makes makes total sense. So at the time when Riso was started, I mean, how how did you get, were you the founder of the company as well? Because you were- No, I've been a broker for a long time, actually. So I was a real estate agent, team leader, broker, and worked in the MLS policy space with the National Association of Realtors a lot. So you saw these different levels of um, organizational relationships and sometimes bureaucracy. And and this is really where the data and the technology was getting stunted. It wasn't able to make it across these different systems. So about 20 years ago, frankly, we call them the geeks of the industry got together and said, let's just build this. Let's just start building this common language. And once people start adopting it, we'll get a little more formal, we'll get more organized. And the National Association of Realtors said, yes, this is a good idea. We want to sponsor this. We want to bring this up um, through our organization so everyone can benefit. 
Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, so they've always been a major sponsor, supporter um, of, of the efforts of RISO. And then after about a decade there, RISO became an independent organization um, with NAR on its board of directors, but also large brokers, MLSs, technology vendors. Really, the, the biggest names you'd hear in organized real estate are all members or on the board of directors at RISO at this point. So it's DocuSign. Was that their other big investment? DocuSign was one of the big wins for Second Century Ventures, yes, which was yeah. NAR's, is NAR's subsidiary. Yes, so it was, it's DocuSign and then Riso in terms of m- money made. I, I, off I would love to say we're as big and as, uh, <laughs> as successful as DocuSign right I'm now. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of fantastic tech companies in there. Uh, we're, we're on the not-for-profit side, though. Got it. Got it. And no, no surprise that you're based in Seattle yourself as well. So that's where a lot of the real estate tech seems seems to be. So. Well, now these standards are in place. What's the practical application then? Give us a couple of real world scenarios uh, for those maybe non-tech minded folks listening of we've got standards and that means now what can start to happen that couldn't happen, you know, eight to 10 years ago. Yeah. So imagine you're a broker and in the past you would go to a conference and say, I need new technology for my accounting system in my office, or I need something to pay commissions in a, a consistent way to my agents. I need a new website. You'd meet with all these other brokers around the country and they'd all say, this tool's the best, this tool's the best. You'd go find the vendor and pay for the tool and they'd say, we'll have that working in six months for you because we have to map everything in your marketplace, in your MLS, a different way than we did in all of these other customers' marketplaces. Hmm. So industry technology lagged because of this. There were not only people who built products slower, there were a lot of folks who were just not spending time and money on technology because it was just such a mess and it was so difficult to um, to be efficient and scale across marketplaces. So today, um, when you've got MLSs who are using RISO standards, so there's a data dictionary and that just talks about terms and their data structure. Um, is it called Bay Window? And is it a digit for a number when we talk about the number of bedrooms in a home? You know, simple, straightforward things. Um, They use the data dictionary to structure their data. And then they use the web API, which is just a common way to transport the data. So everybody knows I can request things 10 ways. The response is going to come back looking like this. Um, And by using those two tools, we can really exchange data, not just between MLSs and brokers, but with your downstream vendors, with your agent's websites, with your consumer-facing portals. Um, And while not everyone has adopted it 100%, um, they virtually all have those capabilities now, and they're making the transition at this point. Yeah. So f- for home builders listening, the r- the real application here or, or similar situation would be you want to syndicate information from your site, your floor plans, your your immediate available homes, both to New Home Source, which is owned by BDX, and you want to also send it to Zillow Group. Uh, they each have a different, although very similar ways that they want that data structured. And so you'd have to go to your website organization and say, these are the fields that their feed is expecting and, and do that work. And so if, if Riso does its job, then there will only in the, in the near or medium future be a single standard that would make it easier for everyone. And I, when I first reached out to Sam, I hadn't even thought about new home applications uh, for, for what he and his company does, to be honest. But as I was doing some additional research, it, it hit me that that might be the case because um, 
well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep digging into that. So uh, co common language around the data structure and how data is shared among mm -hmm. all MLSs, but also creeps beyond the MLS to other vendors and how they can incorporate that as well. So we'll come back to, to data and data sets and all those uh, marvelous words, data dictionary. But let's let's spend some time on the MLS because we need we need someone to help us decode this for builders. And I thought it'd be fun just to start by asking you, Sam, what what do most real estate agents actually get wrong or misunderstand about the thing that they use every day of their of their career? Sure. Um, and this would I be, of course, the average. I'm using air quotes here. Average real estate agent. Not that sure, not that all agents sure. don't understand these things, but well, it, it's okay because I was one of those average agents for a long time before I figured out how it. <laughs> So, um, yeah, most people just think about the technology. Um, what is it, the tool that I'm logging into and I'm using every day? Um, mm. and, and so they think of the MLS as a database or as a technology system. And while those things are there as layers of the MLS, it's not really what MLS is about. There are lots of websites with reports and data, um, but the MLS is a broker cooperative. Really at its core, it's the brokers in the marketplace coming together and saying, I will enter listings in a common way and I will allow you to access the properties in a common way and you will present offers and write contracts in a common way and we'll all agree to these rules up front so that when I have a buyer who sees the sign in front of your brokerage's um, one of their listings, we're not starting from scratch every time. I'm not mm -hmm. thinking I'm going to get cheated out of a commission that I rightfully earned because there weren't rules there. So there's a lot of um, cooperation and compensation is what we talk about. Cooperating rules. And then in the vast majority of cases, there's compensation offered along with that listing. So the buyer's agent knows this is X percent. This is Y dollars. If I show this property, my client will be able to buy that home and I'll get paid um, on that cooperative compensation there. So that's really the core tenets um, of MLS. And then you layer on, is it owned by a realtor organization? Um, in most cases, they are operated by realtor associations. So you layer on some association professional standards, a code of ethics, um, and, and then the tools. And all these tools that the agent can use to advertise to the public, to advertise to their clients, to do networking with other uh, brokers in the MLS, um, do prospecting between each other as well. So it just offers a really, you know, a raised sort of technology and cooperation foundation for them to build their business on top of. And I think for builders, MLS to them more or less means IDX feed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how I get some of my home's informations out there, how I make agents aware that I have a listing and how builders get their information in the MLS even varies widely. The, I would say most use what I affectionately call a renter broker situation where they just pay a flat fee to gain access per listing sure. uh, for someone to maintain it for them. And then there's others who have relationships with, with agents. Uh, but, but more or less that is as, as simplistic as, home builders look at the platform of when I, when I want to make a broader statement that this offering is available and, or I, I need help from real estate agents and realtors, then I put something in the MLS. And when I don't, I don't, I don't bother with it. What, what are they shortchanging themselves there from that perspective? Do you think? Well, there's a huge positive in having every broker with willing and ready clients, potentially seeing your property but then also knowing how they're going to interact with you as an organization, because the ground rules have been set. 
you're not just putting on, you know, big consumer tours for people who are just thinking about remodeling homes and having fun walking through doors. You've got brokers who have identified ready and willing clients to go in um, into that marketplace. So um, there, there's a lot to it there. I think on the technology side, there are not a lot of unifying things in the real estate industry that allow us to simplify, I won't say all, but many of our processes. And the point we've gotten to with the MLS side is uh, there are a lot of tools where you can input your listing in the MLS. You could pull it back down. You can send it to your syndication partners, to your marketing partners, and all of these data sets. Um, and I don't want to say API too many times on a call <laughs> like this, but but these can be very quickly transferred back and forth between your technology partners. So when when a home builder is thinking, well, I've got to get the data to you know the companies you mentioned. Um, and they all do it differently. This one wants me to, you know, they want to pick up a bucket of data from FTP. And this one uses this old system called RETS. This one just wants me to send them a flat file. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, when people start using RESO standards to do this, um, you get the upstream guys who are out there advertising to basically um, adopt these standards. And then for you and your technology vendors, it becomes very easy and the data is flowing back and forth between these tools without as many manual processes. So there's an organizational side that brings you some certainty um, as a home builder as to what that interaction is going to look like with, with certain agents. Um, but there's also information you probably don't have access to right now that might be really helpful for you in forecasting, um, mm. in trending. The, the folks at the MLS level know what's happening at that moment, boots on the ground. Um, whether it's lockbox data, whether it's showing data, whether it's just internal reporting, you might be a month or more ahead of some of the other data sources you're seeing out there in the marketplace. A lot of those are coming from tax record data, which is usually not that quickly updated, um, mm -hmm. or some other third party, whereas at the MLS level, it's instant. So there, there's That's a lot a really of point. information there. Yeah. Yeah. And especially as privacy concerns get tighter, we've we already had a a whole episode devoted to the the algorithm and privacy changes around Facebook advertising where they're going to make, they're saying, hey, we're not going to be able to see what the person's doing on the browser for very much longer. So you're going to have to basically give us a backdoor to your CRM. It seems like uh, that type of, of partnership to have access to that kind of almost real-time data is definitely going to only grow in value too, not there is. And then to be able to do that in a way that still fulfills privacy, but allows you access to some of those people, you know, you can use reverse prospecting in the MLS to say, if there are brokers out there who have a buyer looking in this price range in this city, I can send a solicitation directly to them, depending on the MLS's software and their rules. But but this concept is is available in a lot of marketplaces. So it's not just broad, scattered advertising. You can be really targeted there. And that membership and participation in the MLS is what allows you to have that additional access. When real estate agents use MLS data via IDX to share that data back and forth, one of the questions that has come up as Zillow has, has changed their uh, rules of engagement to having their own agents and, and how they're asking some of their partners to share data to them, some of the questions that have come up to me from builders is, what what are the rules of reciprocity related to that? Once someone has pulled down all the data from a feed like that, you are then or are you not allowed to change or, or decide on your own? If I'm if I'm putting that data then on my own site, 
Can I say, I don't want to show any listings from that Bill Lublin guy because he's crazy? Or <laughs> Hi, Bill. How you doing? How does that work? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so there, there are some very specific rules in IDX as to how that display has to look. And so that will affect some things with, uh, you know, a Zillow type of a company who's a Reso member organization. Um, if they were advertising as a portal prior. And so there were some things they could do with a marketing feed that you might not mm. have with this co-brokerage IDX. But you might have additional capabilities as well. You probably get that data faster, um, less duplication of of listings. Less. There's no doubt about it. That and, that was something that is. I'm not sure you would know better than I. Redfin was seemed to be cleaning Zillow's clock in terms of speed and accuracy of data. Um, and I some of those, it, yeah. Markets. Anyone with an IDX feed was getting the MLS Direct data. Um, mm -hmm. So that that was no surprise that you found that on direct broker websites. Um, so that, that'll shift some things that, you know, a, a technology company like Zillow is shifting over to the brokerage side. Um, but you also get that consistency of all the brokers knowing, um, you know, somebody's not just going to not display my listings because of some arbitrary measure. You can segment, uh, what shows up on an IDX website, but every broker has to be able to get the active data. They have to be able to get pending data. They have to be able to get sold data. Um, and you're not cobbling that together from 10 different sources. So there's there's a huge benefit to um, having some rules for display that the cooperative agreed to, um, and then being able to open up those floodgates of data and say, okay, you've got the best data there is now, just follow the rules that we've all agreed upon. When builders, this seems to be especially popular in the great state of Texas, a home builder will build a website and they will put floor plans, homes that are not have not yet been built on their site, but all of their homes under construction or um, or move in ready, they will pull in from an MLS feed because they've got a partner who is handling that all essentially turnkey for them. So they've they've outsourced that more or less, images taken, descriptions written, all the stuff loaded into the MLS system, and they want to then just import that all back into their own site. It seems like. Uh, Rizzo and and this idea generally can because generally that's been a complete disaster. Uh, both because they don't really know how to bring it back in and display it correctly. Sometimes there's a subdomain or it's just when like you're on the builder's site, you click a button and suddenly you're in this IDX web looking place that's different. Analytics can't be tracked the same way. We don't get to follow this, the customer journey as we'd like to. Um, it seems like their web developers need to be reaching out to you or your your group. <laughs> uh, certainly to the technology companies that are part of Resource yeah. membership, yes. Yeah. Um, there's There are a lot of things that we've built out over the years to get rid of some of that, you know, the data sharing, the data transport um, inconsistencies that you're talking about, um, but also just the data accuracy when we've got listings and agents and properties going out with, slightly misaligned addresses and ID numbers. And, um, you know, it turns into sort of a mess. Whereas you work with companies that have sort of holistic platforms that use these unique identifiers, for example. So unique property identifier, uh, unique organization identifier. So we know that property that came over from the MLS in East Seattle is the same property and listing that came across from the MLS in West Seattle. Um, and your developers mm -hmm. at, you know, a builder company or any company can start to say, I can match these things up quickly. Um, I'd love to be able to share it in a common way using, you know, web API as a RESO standard. But even if I just get that data in any way, I want to be able to make sure that meshes and comes together cleanly. 
And so most organizations at this point are using a vendor for the web API. So um, any of the major, um, your CoreLogic, Black Knight, FBS, um, Navica, Rapatoni, Dyna Connection. Sorry if I leave any of you guys <laughs> out, but I have to stop at some point here. Um, and so if you're filtering all your data in and out through a system like that, potentially, um, then you know it's coming back in RESO standardized format. You're not going to get a mismatch where it says, you know, bedrooms on one and bedroom on the other and bed slash room on the other and have to do all this really valueless work on technology. It doesn't actually add anything to the process when it hasn't been mapped to, to the standard up front. So um, there's a lot of benefit there, especially as we see more consolidation. We see more data shares um, across MLS spaces and um, just the expansion of people's reliance on, on data in their apps and their displays. One of the other critiques that home builders have always pushed when they, when they, when they decide they want to push back against getting their information in the MLS is all of the arbitrary rules and limitations and when it comes to media. And this is going mm -hmm. way back. 10 or 12 years ago in Pennsylvania, they had an arbitrary rule at the time at the Pittsburgh MLS, no more than 20 images allowed. And so hope, hopefully the good, and I think the maximum you know resolution was like 800 by 600 or some, some right, crazy number. Right. Talk to us about, is that, is that much better now? Is that still an issue that is, you know, virtual tours and all of the rich media now that that consumers want and a lot of people are spending a lot of time and money to create. Is that already being solved? Is that, is there a process in place that? Yeah, it, it's getting much better. It's getting much better. There are always artifacts from old policies that we're dredging up somewhere and realizing that we're, um, you know, slowing down a technology company is just trying to do the right thing. So um, I've worked on National Association of Realtors MLS Technology Advisory Board for a number of years. It feels like every year we try to burn one of those rules uh, so that we can get you know things faster and more efficient. But but you're right that the the rich media part becomes more and more important, and we have to have the capabilities for people to get floor plans, you know, 3D doll houses, whatever it happens to be, from a builder through their vendor to the MLS out to your syndication portal. <laughs> um, and again, I'm, I'm hammering on this as I always do, but there's a standard way to do that. So everybody doesn't have to reinvent well, the that, wheel. It, yeah. And so to unpack that a little bit and, and also self-educate me by you correcting me and telling me how wrong I am. The idea here is to have a field that just says dollhouse or whatever. And it's, and it's more or less the specific technology or company that created that dollhouse shouldn't be as relevant. That, so yes, there's two sides to that coin. Okay, um, the first step is that for us to be able to just say, here's your drop-down menu, tell us what kind of media this is. And then um, you could actually upload that data, that data set, whatever media it is to the MLS. And MLSs are expanding their ability to do that greatly. Um, you'll see um, sometimes these things aren't policy from the national side. It may be a local MLS that their technology only allowed them to upload 25 photos. Um, yeah. It may be someone had a rules committee who decided we need to make a limit. Don't know why. They thought it might cost more money to store big <laughs> photos. So they said 800 by 600. Um, AWS is going to send you that extra check for, for, <laughs> exactly. for an invoice for 12 more cents. Exactly. Pictures, yeah. um, but, but everybody's aware that that's a big deal and it's important to us. Um, if it's not in the, allowed in the MLS, it's going to be elsewhere and it's going to drive people elsewhere. So um, 
that's that's one thing that folks are looking at now is how do we actually encourage um, that kind of media to exist outside, but for you to easily be able to reference it in the MLS. Yeah. So if you were to just say, here's a URL, this, right. I know based on the URL that it's this kind of a floor plan. You took plan. me back to an old programming class and I wanted to scream out pointer. It's a pointer. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, right. it's pointing to where to go. Yeah. So you've got systems that automatically draw floor plans into all their reports and displays because they've just got a URL sitting there and they know exactly what it is. So yeah. um, getting professionals and consumers access to all the data, obviously, but this kind of rich media, it's a huge point, really important. We're working on simpler ways to do it through standards. <laughs> But that has to also make its way down to the local MLSs. And they have to say, with their technology vendors, can we do this? And do we have the will to change these rules and make it happen? And in general, everyone's saying yes, but things take time. That's so, so interesting. One of the other things that builders are doing, like I said, because the, the number one way they, they view the MLS is providing value is getting that extra exposure on the homes they have as inventory of all all home types, new and we say used on this podcast, but I know it's existing. Um, used homes, the, the inventory is not there. What a lot of builders mm -hmm. have started doing is purposefully withholding, putting information on homes on the MLS until the last possible moment. So where they might put it in as soon as it begins construction. Now they're saying, hey, let's let's hold off and maybe we don't need to get those real estate professionals a heads up that this is here because they're all hunting so ferociously for home inventory that maybe we can not pay that 3% to a, to an agent. Um, I think the key to, to a lot of better understanding on this is that full data picture that you're talking about. The trade-off might be that, yes, everyone knows what you have, but most times we're not in a pandemic where housing is more valuable than toilet paper. And right. so overall, it might be a, to everyone's advantage to have the most accurate picture of, of what's going on for the company at all times. I, th I think it is. I think there's also, and we see this across many different segments of the industry, this idea that if I can sell it fast for what I think it's worth, maybe I don't need more exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a self-reinforcing <laughs> right. you know, philosophy. Yeah. Um, but you know, did I get top price? You know, It's sort of like when the agent says, did I get the seller his price? Well, the seller doesn't know what they could have gotten. And you're the professional, but you also don't know sometimes these bids go you, up. You know, within windows and your, your range sure. is probably much tighter than, than their range. Right. But, but in this just, kind of a market with this scarcity of inventory, homes are selling for 15% over list when we thought they'd go for 5% over list. So mm -hmm. it's a very practical reason to go through that process. But, you know, you mentioned a, you know, a 3% commission. I think maybe there's still this old school mindset out there a lot that I have like commissions are somehow structured or standardized. Um, if you came to Seattle and looked at the range of different broker models, business models, right. commission rates, they're widely ranging. So I suppose, you know, and it's not, not up to me to tell you what percentage is, is good or preferred or anything else. Yeah, the Justice Department says that's a bad idea. I think. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But, yeah. but that being said, um, they're everywhere. There's every choice in the world for you in terms of right. the level of service you look for and the, the cost of that service. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't think it can justify that cost based on the information you get, the transparency and the regularity of you know the certainty of your processes there, and then obviously these bidding wars of brokers with buyers, well, then maybe you don't need to have the listing there. But I would wager... The vast majority of the time, that exposure is going to be good for your brand. 
It's going to be good for your sales price. It's going to be good for the agent's yep. knowledge of who you are. There's a lot more benefit to it than, than just that cost. I completely agree. And I think for the agents that I know pretty well, they're more just about knowing where they stand and the level of trust between the organization. And to me, and to for, from their perspective, it wasn't that long ago where some builders were promoting six and a half, eight percent if you sell two in a year kind of a, a program. And then they're the first ones to say, can we go to half a percent or cut them out entirely when it gets too too good? And so if you just look at the longer term average and say in a in a in a flat market, so to speak, to your point, uh, we we feel like two percent or one point seven five is a is a fair amount for the amount of engagement that that is expected. And I, I completely, completely agree with that. Yeah. And, and I don't know what, what fair is. I just do know that you yeah. have every choice in the world and the competition is fierce out there on price. So um, there's certainly, you know, there's a lot there. I think one of the things that, you know, you pointed out, which is really important to focus on too, is not just the idea of, uh, of the MLS as a website of IDX of getting that, uh, you know, that listing out there. But as brokers, which I imagine you could tell me, some of your builders are brokers themselves as well. And most are not. That's the other most shocking thing. Most of okay. them are, you know, I passed a test to be to, for, to have my contractor's license in my state. And sure. now I've got a pickup truck and I'm going to start building some stuff. And then I grow and I get bigger. And they will yep. then either partner with a broker, realtor, with an outside organization, or someone inside will get licensed. But the vast majority of organizations that that we work with around the country, I would say only about 35, 40% have a licensed broker in-house. Okay, gotcha. So we're looking at the majority without. Um, and, and either way, if they were a broker who was a participant in the MLS or whether they worked with their preferred broker, there's a lot more data than what's on that website. There's a lot more data than what's in IDX. There's broker back office feeds at most MLSs. Um, at Realtor MLSs, you have what's called a VOW feed. These things have almost the entire MLS data set in them that brokers are using for an analysis in their backend tools. So and that's a big, at, at Heartland um, in Pittsburgh, where I spent most of my time, our co-op rate for, for many different reasons, it was, we actually tried to push it higher. We felt like we were capturing people maybe earlier in the search process with some of our digital marketing early on. Mm -hmm. Regardless, we were about 28% as a co-op rate. And I think it was around 2009, we realized that we had a conversation with a broker who was shocked that we were doing 300 homes a year in their market. And it was because of that type of a report where they're like, well, you don't put your other 75% or whatever of your sales in the MLS? Well, no, because we don't, we don't list them. And so if a nation's not involved, they're not in there. And they were like, just the general awareness of the brand as a whole and the amount of business that we did in that marketplace we started putting in our sales after the fact mm -hmm. just to make sure that, that that reporting data was up there because then we got on, on realtors' radars as we were trying to increase our co-op percentage. Yeah, and that's that's something that's you know not as well known until more recent years, but those having people actually input listings that maybe didn't get listed on the MLS, but they were by participants of the MLS. Mm -hmm. And you start getting access to those data sets that are, again, things that a lot of national powerful organizations don't have unless they're yep. MLS members. Okay. A very selfish question for all the builders out there. One of the other reasons they don't list it early on is because of the the days listed in, in the field. And they're like, well, this, this is unfair. Our home is not finished for 120 days after we listed the MLS. 
And so realtors come at us right from the get-go and say, well, this home's already been on the market for 120 days, even though we just put the last touch-up paint on the wall this afternoon. Right. Anything that they can do or should be uh, talking to someone like you about to try to help that? Sure. There, there are a number of things. What, part of the difficulty is, again, some fragmentation across marketplaces. Sure. Some MLSs have a coming soon status where you can list the property on the MLS, days on market don't accrue hmm. until you actually go active. Um, not all MLSs have that. And the idea of that is, well, if you're going to not accrue days on market, then maybe you shouldn't be showing and selling the property. It's not really coming soon if you're selling it. Right. But we also see that new construction is usually carved out in a different way. Policies at uh, the National Association of Realtors will allow for carve outs for certain reasons because it is a different animal. So. Um, I think the fear that everything will get treated as exactly the same as a traditional resale property is, is not true in a lot of cases. Now, you'll, you'll hear individual cases where a market says, nope, we're not doing coming soon. It's either active or it's not. Um, and, and that's problematic for some folks, obviously. You've got new policy, though, like clear cooperation um, at NAR, which requires if you're going to advertise your properties to the world for sale and you're an MLS participant, you need to have it in the MLS. But say you're a new construction builder and you're building a 48 unit, whatever it happens yeah. to be, um, you shouldn't have to put 48 listings in <laughs> while it's under construction. So again, these special carve outs will be put in place where if you're gonna have a sign up and flyers and ads, um, yeah. just put one listing in and that model home or whatever it happens to be is there. So all the other brokers know it's here, you can get access to it and you can show it at the appropriate time but we all don't, we don't want. And the please for all those consumers who have to scroll an extra two minutes to get past right. those other exactly. 47 that are exactly the same. Please don't. Yeah. yeah. Yes, please don't. <laughs> I used to do that on our website, filter new and whatever happened to be new, modern homes, et cetera. Right. It's not fun. Yeah. Builders say it all the time. Well, competitor X, some national company just flooded the market with all their crap, you know, to be built or, or such. And so it's completely unusable in, in or, or pushes consumers away. Yeah. I think for, for builders, if they wanted to get involved in getting more consistency there, I mean, there's a couple places, um, obviously, you know, standards are great. Your local MLS is important because a lot of them adopt custom local rules, um, on a national scale, NAR, which was, you know, more traditionally focused on residential resale. Um, but resale as well, right now is really, um, trying to to reach out and be more valuable and helpful, frankly, for new construction builders, for rental property management companies, and for commercial real estate companies. Um, because that MLS focus was so residential resale for so long, um, which makes sense because that's what 90% of your realtors are selling. Um, but, but there are ways that we can add that sort of capacity to do things a little bit differently in those spaces. Um, so that's where we've got you know, at Risa, we've got CoStar and Rental Beast and Empac um, in Ontario, all these different assessment and rental and commercial type companies getting involved. Um, and that same thing will happen through the National Association of Realtors as well and trying to find the, the nuances where we can make this work for everybody. A couple more quick questions that I want to get your perspective or insight for our audience who might be less close to all this on some of the recent uh, news with CoStar and, and other things. I saw an interesting post on your, on your site that I didn't have a chance to read all the way through yet, but it, it talked about unshackling MLS data. What does that mean? What's the, um, what's the hope or the goal there? Sure. So I think it's a little bit related to what you were talking about before, which is how do we get our data back out? 
I'm an MLS participant. I agree to put my listings in and follow the rules, but then I have trouble getting my data back out of the MLS. And sometimes that's technical, hmm. um, but a lot of times it's policy. A lot of times it's realtor policy, 20-year-old rules from when we started um, you know, doing anything digital really in the MLS space. And it's been updated and it's been tweaked and, and moved around wherever we needed on a year-to-year basis. But it's never really been looked at of totally overhauling it and just saying, let's make one simple policy for any broker participant in an MLS to get all of the data out that they might possibly need in one simple way. And then we can layer the rules on top and keep all the rules we need for privacy, for cooperation, for misuse, for not distributing the data to people who don't um, have a license to use it, um, but really just rethinking from the ground up. So we had a basically a year's worth of meetings at Reso talking about whether this was possible, whether it was needed. Um, the MLSs and brokers involved said, yes, absolutely. We want things to be easier. Um, of course, the devil's in the details. <laughs> but we went through putting together a rough proposal for what that would look like. Um, and that's moved over to Council of MLS, which is another large trade organization um, in the industry. It has about 200 MLS members. Um, and they're looking over it for what the policy might look like from a, an implementation standpoint. You know, the MLS has to actually put the rules in place. It has to enforce the rules. It has to authorize this data to go out to the brokers. Um, there's a lot more than just, hey, broker wants his data back. So that is likely something, though, that would move through CMLS and then on to NAR for national policy. And that is wants their data back as in no longer in there or just wants a copy of it? I guess uh, that's wants a copy of it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But but more than just their own data, because when they sign up for the MLS, they, they're going to get an aggregated data set as well. Mm -hmm. And there are a very limited number of fields that are confidential to each broker. And only that broker can see those fields. Mm -hmm. But the brokers also get that aggregated data set of everyone's sales and everyone's pendings and everyone's actives. Right. And, and the brokers want to be able to get all of that. Just open up the floodgates, give it to me. My tech guys will deal with it. And, and it's interesting because we're going sort of both directions now. The other big um, move is to be able to have brokers push listings straight into the MLS as opposed to maybe needing to go into this software tool or this mm -hmm. interface or this input. Um, and when you start directing, uh, going directly from broker into MLS through technology, you just open up the, the ability for them to be more adaptive with their technology as well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay, CoStar. You you mentioned them earlier. They did they did something uh, fa fairly big. It seems there's still ripples in, in the Twitterverse and, and mm -hmm. news or, news sites like Inman. Uh, they they purchased HomeSnap, right? Which I'm currently less interested in for our audience because most of our audience has no idea who CoStar is. Okay, um, and I, we probably should just have them on, on the podcast to tell their own story. I don't, don't sure. to put it all on you, but people are talking about them being a for, formidable organization and very data-driven. Owner of apartments.com for, mm -hmm. for as a good entryway, but they do a lot more. Just what can you tell us generally about how, how they function and, and where they may go with this acquisition? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. There's a lot of speculation yeah, out there. Um, and that's all I could give you as well. Um, sure. Just from, from what I know, having worked with a um, commercial real estate brokerage that used CoStar um, for their commercial data, and then the HomeSnap side, which is a very different animal there, you know, CoStar seems to operate more of a, an individual silo of data that brokers sign up for and use directly. 
them buying HomeSnap obviously gives them to gives them access to a lot of MLS relationships for residential data. So you certainly bring a lot of you know capabilities to be more knowledgeable and provide more knowledge to your customers who are looking for that residential MLS data. Um, the really interesting thing, or maybe interesting only to insiders, but um, the complexity of that situation is that those MLS relationships are also dependent on the broker public portal, which is in my right hand, mm-hmm. and HomeSnap, the software company in my left hand, and in between the two is a joint venture that allows those things to work together and publish publicly um, you know, to consumers through that MLS data. So there's a lot of nuance there. Yeah. Um, and the agreement that uh, is in place is that this is a, it's a no, uh, you're listing your lead concept. The idea there wouldn't be ads on the listings. The brokers can put their data there. They can get the leads back when people send inquiries. Um, so philosophically, maybe it does fit, um, you know, CoStar's sort of overall model, which is a, a different model than Zillow. And everybody wants to get excited about the competitive space there, but they're just different business models. Yeah. As a person who works in the real estate industry, it can be mentally interesting to think about all the what's and ifs and coulds and shoulds as, uh, but honestly, as a consumer who has, um, you know, my wife especially just wants the one easiest place. When we first started shopping for our current home that's under construction, she saw a Matterport tour for the first time about five months ago or so, Sam. And her first reaction was, well, where can I go just to see all of these in Columbus? It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't exist, honey. And she's like, well, it should, it should be like Zillow. It's just had everything, you know? And, and so it's interesting as on one hand, the consumer, I'm just continuing to rally for easier, simple, everything as accessible as possible with the most amount of data, but there is another side to it. And if I, I'm, I'm saying this mostly just to try to impress you, if what you've taught me over the last 50 minutes is is sinking into me, CoStar is now able to use the HomeSnap connection to MLSs and, and their data sets to now broaden their ability to, to use that data to potentially do much more than they are now, where they're, where they're focused mainly on the rental space and, and commercial. Potentially. I mean, I'm not privy to yeah, those agreements, right, right, right. But, but yes, if, if you look at what they've done with apartments.com, that's a very high profile public space. And so it very well may be that that, you know, that's the thought with the residential resale space, um, you know, and, and obviously new construction could be part of that as well, um, that you get traditionally from the MLS is that this is just another arm to that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to say if that's a listing subscription model, if it's something else, um, they might just be very different models for each one of those sectors, but it does get very interesting when you've got rentals and you've got residential and you've got commercial, um, you become a very powerful organization there. Well, in closing, Sam, what I really think and I, and I hope can be helpful is there's really only a handful of website backend systems, content management systems or, or um, larger in our space. There's really three that the vast majority um, um, work on. Right now, they're all proprietary and individual. And if we can get uh, resource standards in place, then that's going to potentially really simplify the life for for builders uh, as data just becomes more and more important in everything that we do. 
I think as you're talking about your wife's situation where she wants to see a new construction home and she wants to see all of those Matterports, 3D tours, whatever they happen to be in one place, as long as we can get all these competitors to agree on a common way to transmit that information, what the data should look like, what that media looks like and gets there, then it's okay. They go out and compete. They do things slightly differently, but it shouldn't be the lack of standards that drives the winner. It should be the best innovator on top of the standards. Well, that that's the hope because what I'm seeing right now is a lot of people trying to create on our side. I say that as on the new construction end, a whole lot of, of fiefdoms trying to be created where we don't play well with others, but we're going right. to get there faster. We're going to spend more money. We're going to, and, and there's just no way that any of them are going to get a big enough s- slice to, to truly do that. As fragmented as, as general real estate is, new construction is, It feels like more just because there's not enough of it. So even like a a fragment of a smaller starting fragment, if that makes sense, it's just like, man, this is, this is going to be way too hard. Yeah. Starting with the scarcity mindset versus the abundance mindset, you know, not, not just believing that there's enough for everybody. If you're all, you know, competing on a higher sort of plateau there, Um, Hey, it's business. People are going to try to eat your lunch, but we can certainly uh, do it in a way that's consumer focused first. Mm-hmm. And usually that ends up pushing us towards standards or whatever whatever other technology innovation is is that consumer friendly and not just, as you said, silos of traditional technology. Awesome. Well, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to get to know you better and to let our audience learn more about the MLS and how standards are going to make all of our lives better in the future. Well, it was great getting, uh, getting to talk to you and hopefully introduced to some of your builders and uh, beat Michigan. Oh, yeah. Uh, we Michigan is what we say here. You can't say the <laughs> M part. <laughs> All right. All right. I think Sam did a fantastic job giving us those additional insights into the MLS and really laid out the case for why builders maybe are missing the mark and not consistently being a part of their local MLS, especially that data that you can get access to at a much more essentially in a real-time way. All right. And this week's question of the week, going off some of the budget conversations we had at the top of the show, syndication as a whole. We talked about BDX, Realtor.com, ShakeUp, And then, of course, you still have Zillow Group and all the offerings that they have. As you plan for 2021, do you anticipate your investment level in syndication as a whole is going to be increasing, decreasing, or staying the same in 2021 as it was in 2020? Super interested to hear your thoughts. When we go through the answers, I'll also give you my recommendations as well as thoughts. We won't comment from DYC's end as you guys are saying your answers, but go in there, drop, drop your answer in the poll. And uh, I still have some more gifts to give away and, and it's still Christmas time. So Ooh, we'll pick we? a winner uh, to win a fantastic piece of electronic material that will help you make content. Mm. Love it. That's exciting. All right. That'll do it for us this week. You can call in with your questions on this episode or any other to 404-369-2595. We might kill that at the end of the year because you're all scared to death to talk to us uh, and leave leave your voice. Again, we can we can mask it. What, we if, can make you... text, what if they could text a question? Uh, you can text a question. Oh, there we go. Sure. Maybe go that's I don't think they're going to do that either. I think people either. are... 
are scared. They like the privacy of the Facebook group where no one else can see unless they're in the group. They're like, what if my boss yeah. listens? What if somebody, you know, it's just, it's very scary. I understand. You can also email questions to show at doconvert.com and just put in, don't use my name. Keep this anonymous. We will totally uh, keep you safe. For published articles, blog posts, videos, and more, check out doconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.